Amen. If you will, um, take your Bibles, bulletin, or uh, electronic device and turn to James chapter 3. If you're using your bulletin, it's on um, page number 3. And um, we don't have a pew Bible, so I can't give you the page number for that. Uh, I was recently talking to someone, and we were talking about Sunday. And I told him, I said, you know, he's like, you know, I'm really struggling with understanding the Sabbath. And I was like, just remember two words, joy and refreshment. If you come out of Sunday and you're like, man, that wasn't joyful and that wasn't refreshing, then you need to figure out why. Because that's what the Sabbath is designed to do. And so whatever activities uh, we engage in on the Sabbath, if it doesn't bring true joy and true refreshment and the way that God has directed us, then that's a good pattern for us to follow. Well, James chapter 3, as we continue our series in the book of James, And our teaching today is going to be based on the entire chapter, though I will say this, I will disappoint you today because I will not tackle every single piece of this text. I just can't within the time frame that we have. But I will say this, the Holy Spirit will not disappoint you because um, he will impress upon your heart the power that is in these verses just by my mere reading it. And if there is something that you say, hey, pastor, uh, you missed this. I, I really wanted to hear what you have to say to this. Come to me or bypass me and go straight to Albert, who has studied this passage well and knows all that's in it. Um, but I will say this. <laughs> but I will say this. Read through this chapter this week. I know some of you have your Bible reading plan and you have certain things. Um, Please read through this chapter a little bit and let this chapter sink in. Because this is a powerful chapter within the book of James. I think one of the most, at least for me, impactful chapters in the book of James. So I'll encourage you to do that as well. All right, here now the reading of God's precious and holy word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue. It is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. I'd say amen to that. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. 
My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes, comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Amen. Full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither, and the flower will fade But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word, the gospel, that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the glorious opportunity we have to come before you today and feel your joy and have a sense of refreshment. Holy Spirit, come now. These are your people. Speak to them in ways that I absolutely cannot and don't even know how to. There are things deep in their hearts that you alone can root out. And so I pray that if I say anything amiss, may you deafen their ears. But if you, O Lord, take whatever is said, speak to them in a powerful way. That you don't just change their tongue, but their minds, and most importantly, their hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen and amen. Now we're uh, again in this section of James, where James is talking to us about what the godly Christian life should look like. Or if I can put it a different way, how does the gospel flow through us and into the community? Because we're supposed to be a gospel-saturated people. We're supposed to be a people who, if we come to church, we hear the preaching of the word, we study the word, and therefore the gospel is supposed to flow right through us. That's what James is talking about. And so as James talks about how the gospel is applied to every area of our life, of course he's going to have a section on the tongue. Now let me say this to, to begin with. This is not going to be a sermon about how not to cuss and swear, okay? This, this isn't like, here's five tips for not cussing when somebody cuts you off, uh, you know, while you're driving. That's not this kind of sermon. And if that's what we think it is, if you walk out of this sermon getting, I, you know, I need some tips on how to speak better, then you've missed what James is saying. What James is talking about here is so much more profound than just the words that we say. Because James is using the tongue as a metaphor for the heart. If you go to Matthew 15, it's one of of those glorious portions of Scripture. You know, the Pharisees came to Jesus, and not in a good way, right? 
They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, your, your disciples are, are eating with unwashed hands, right? Now, my kids eat with unwashed hands all the time, uh, even though I tell them you need to wash your hands before you eat. But even back then, they didn't have access to fresh water. So, of course, from time to time, they had to eat with unwashed hands. And they're like, oh, my goodness, Jesus, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Don't you know the filth that's on your hands? You used the bathroom and you, like, touched all sorts of surfaces. You're going to get sick. You're defiling yourselves. And Jesus looks at them and says, oh, my goodness. Do you really think that what you put in your body defiles you? No, 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 no. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's actually what comes out of the body that shows how defiled you are. You see, the Pharisees are so careful about what they ate. They wouldn't eat pork. They wouldn't eat things strangled. They wouldn't eat things with blood in it. But Jesus is telling them, but you, you, you don't, you show so much, like, like you're so meticulous about what you eat. But have you ever stopped and thought about what comes out of your mouth? Isn't it interesting to me? We live in a society of people who are obsessed with what they put in their mouth. Everyone's counting calories. I need to eat more vegetables, you know, which eat your vegetables, kids. And, and everyone keeps talking about, about what you put in your mouth. Eat this, not that. And Jesus is telling us, aren't you even more concerned about what comes out of you? If it's true that you are what you eat, then it's even more true that you are the things you say. Do I have your attention yet? <laughs> you see, there are some of us are so meticulous about what we put in our mouth, but we give no thought about what comes out of our mouths. And that's what James is saying here. In this passage, James is concerned about what is coming out of us. More importantly, What are the things in our hearts that come out? I hear people all the time say, I didn't mean to say that. Pause for a moment. It's in your heart. Now, granted, you didn't mean to say it, but if it wasn't there to begin with, it wouldn't come out. And I understand what people mean when they say it. They didn't mean to hurt someone, or they didn't mean to say it in that way. But, beloved, you say nothing that's not in your heart. Ponder on that for a moment. There is no thing that you say that doesn't already exist deep down in your heart. And that's what James is concerned about. That's what he's concerned about rooting out. And James, in this passage, says two things about the potential of our tongue. The first thing he says about the potential of our tongue and indicates the condition of our heart he says the, the, the tongue has potential for great good, enormous good. But at the same time, the tongue has potential for great evil and wickedness. The writer of the Proverbs says it even more succinct in Proverbs 18.21 when he says the tongue, within the tongue, there is power to give life 
and there's a power to give death or cause death. Do you realize you have that power? You have that power. Either your words, you're going to use your words to bring life, to bring hope, to bring joy, or you're going to use your words to bring destruction. That's what James is saying here. So let's look at it. The potential for great blessing. First of all, notice verse uh, in this passage, verse 1 through 5, James outlines the power of our words to bring blessing, to bring hope, and to bring life. First of all, he starts by saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why does he start off talking about teachers? What do you think? Two reasons real quick. First of all, teacher there has the idea of just mature Christian. Because in the ancient areas, those that taught others were considered mature in their faith. Right? Or, or just older, an older person that imparts knowledge. Two reasons why he starts off as teachers. Number one, because teachers use more words. I'm using more words today than you are right now. And so the potential for me to say something foolish or crazy or errant is greater because I'm the teacher. That's why he says in verse number two, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able also to bridle his whole body. What is he saying there? If you're a teacher and you speak, the chances are that you're going to say something wrong is greater. And in fact, it will happen. That's why you need to be humble. That's why you need to be thoughtful and mindful in the way you speak. Because we'll be judged with greater strictness. But there's another reason why James starts off by teachers. Because as teachers, we have the power to shape our community. Again, in James's day, you didn't have podcasts or television sets or all these other portals for information. You depended on the person who was teaching you. You didn't even have the Bible, so you couldn't even correct if he or she was saying something incorrectly. And so you had to depend on your teacher to give you wisdom and understanding. And if they told you lies, if they led you in the wrong path, then you would go astray. And so James is saying, don't you see that if you're a teacher, parents, you need to be careful what you say to your children. Those of you in positions of authority, we need to be careful with what we say to our children or those around us because our words shape community. And so James begins with this warning be careful what you say because you're shaping everyone around you. And by the way, public service announcement here. James isn't just concerned about what you say, but how you say it. Remember, the writer of the Proverbs, Proverbs 15.1, says a soft answer turneth away wrath. There's so many of us, we love to stand on the side of truth. I'm telling you the truth, so you should listen to me. Doesn't matter how I say it. Of course it does. Because God is concerned not just by what you say, but how you say it. Both are important, and that's what James is indicating here. Now, the potential for great blessing for our speech. James, who's a master illustrator, by the way, 
On, I, I mean, James just does a beautiful job with each and every illustration that he gives. Notice the illustrations that he gives to show the power of our speech. He says, first of all, he uses two, a horse and a ship. He says in verse number three, if we put bits into the mouth of a horse so that it obey us, we guide their, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by the strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot, the, the, wherever the will of the pilot directs it. Two things about these illustrations that are just amazing to me. The first is this, how words can shape you. How words can shape you. That's the point of this. Words have the power to shape who you are. In the same way you have a powerful horse or you have a mighty ship, how the words, the rudder, he says, or the bit can control that. Words have the power to shape you. If you speak those things that are food for your soul, then you will be changed. I meet people all the time who say, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if I could change. I don't know if I could go down the path. Yes, you can. And it starts with how you speak, which is a sign of what's inside of you. But even deeper than that, James is saying something that I think is so profound. And here it is. Horses and ships were used by countries for commerce and for war. And if you had horses and ships, you can change an entire culture. And what James is saying in this passage is this. If you want to change your home, if you want to change the culture of where you work, if you want to change the culture of your community, if you want to change the culture of our country, change the way we speak. Because your words have power. When Pax Romana occurred, um, the Roman peace, and the Romans took over, they built, two, they built their armies around two things, horses and ships. Because as the horses and ships went out, they were able to conquer everyone that much more faster. So much so that, that they're the reason why we learn Latin even today. In fact, they're the reason why the gospel was propagated all through the world. Do you see the point that James is making here? That our words have tremendous power to shape not only us personally, not only our home parents. You want to change the culture in your home? Change the way you speak. Not just how you speak, but what you say. It has a powerful influence. And so that's what James is talking about here, the, the power that our words tend to have. But notice also James is saying one last thing, and again, this is, this is so incredible to me. James makes this point that the bit and the bridle, and even the rudder, that it has the power to control a mighty beast. Anytime in the Bible you read the word control, I want you to think Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 5.16 says, Be not drunk with wine or excess, but be controlled or filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if alcohol causes us to lose control, the Holy Spirit causes us 
to gain control. And there is nothing more powerful and glorious than a Christian who has controlled, Holy Spirit-driven speech. We'd be unstoppable. We can change not only our home, not only could we change Flintstone, but the impact of Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-controlled speech could control the nation and even extend to the world. That's the power of what James is saying here. Controlled Holy Spirit um, speech that shapes our hearts and mind. Now notice with me, he not only talks about the power of speech, how powerful our speech can be, but he spends a great deal of time talking about how sinful and corrosive our speech can be. And the reason why he spends more time on this, I am convinced is because all of us have had experiences where we have felt the effects of bad speech over the impact of good speech. And the same thing is true for James as well. James lived in a culture of people who had speech that was corrosive in the same way we live in a culture where we see the corrosive effects of speech all the time. Just turn on the news. Read the comment section in a YouTube video. It's awful. Now, James here shows us, again, giving us two illustrations that I think are just glorious. The first one is that of fire. And the other one, and that's seen in verse number six, or at least the end of verse number five into verse number six. He says, the tongue is a fire. And the other one is in verse number eight, where he talks about the tongue being deadly poison. And both of those, when he talks about fiery speech, I'm going to call this fiery speech. What is the character of fiery speech James is talking about here? Well, fiery speech is speech designed to hurt. In the same way fire hurts us. Fire burns, it's scorched earth um, uh, speech. And he gives the character of that throughout the passage. So, okay, first of all, he says, look, the tongue is a, uh, is a fire. And then in verse number six, he says, a world of unrighteousness. What does he mean the fire, fiery speech is a world of unrighteousness? It has the idea that speech that is, pain, uh, that is painful, vitriolic speech, scorched earth speech, is when we craft our words to hurt people because we're hurting. And so our speech is fiery. It's when someone insults us and we can't wait to insult them back. Or we take our time and we go and walk away and think of all the ways we're going to insult them back the next time we talk to them. That's fiery speech. It creates a world of unrighteousness. It's unbounded speech. And it's designed to hurt. But notice... James goes on to say fiery speech is not only deadly because it harms us, but notice in verse number six, he says it stains the whole body. And the understanding behind staining the whole body is this. Fiery speech makes you or ruins your testimony. I'll never forget, a friend of mine wanted us to go out and, and meet his new girlfriend, and we met her, and, and I, we looked at her, and it's like, man, this girl is beautiful. Uh, not as beautiful as my wife, of course. I mean, you know, calm down. Um, but but this, this young lady was absolutely gorgeous. And, and so we sat down with her, 
And that immediately as she opened her mouth, she became a troll like a troll does. Because every other word out of her mouth was a curse word. She complained the whole time. She was awful to our server. I mean, it, it got so bad, I couldn't wait to even finish my food. I called for my check, paid for it, and left. Now, here is this young lady who externally was very attractive, very engaging, or had the potential to be, but there was such a stain on her because of her speech that after a while, she became like just, just like stench. She became like stench to be around. That's what the Bible means, that we need to be careful about our speech because we can become a stench to be around. That's fiery speech. But notice the last one James gives here. He says, not only is it stained to the whole body, but it's setting on fire the entire course of life. What does he mean by setting on fire the entire course of life? I remember reading an article many years ago on World War II. And in World War II, it was a horrific war. And one of the reasons why it was horrific was because of some of the chemical agents that they used. And they actually used flamethrowers quite a bit. And many of the men in World War II became horrifically scarred to the point that when they went back home, their family didn't want to be around them. And eventually, they had to create these uh, colonies for them to live in. Because, because people didn't want to even look at them, how horribly scarred they were. The good thing that actually came out of that is there was a lot of advancement in plastic surgery. But here's the point that I want to make. In the same way those men bore awful scars because of war and because of the situation that they're in, our words can create awful scars in one another. You know, there are things that were said to me growing up that I wish I could forget. And there are deep scars that I have even now that has shaped my fears, my concerns, my frustrations. And make no mistake, there have been fiery words said to you that have shaped your hearts and your minds that have deep and awful scars that it will take many more years and the power of the Holy Spirit to fix. And for some of us, they'll last until the day we die. Be careful of fiery speech. Be careful of the things you say. Because they can have awful, scarring impact on the people around us. Now that's fiery speech, but James talks about another kind of speech. And let me say this too, as a bit of an aside. I was reading Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, and this, this, past, this verse just leapt out at me. It says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. And at the same time, I was reading some passages in the verse of Leviticus about how salt was put in amidst, amidst the offering before the Lord. And as it was given to the Lord, it would be burned up. And if you understand anything about salt and how it works, salt is both a preserver and it indicates purity. And it dawned on me that the antidote to fiery speech 
is a speech that's seasoned with salt, a speech that is pure, and a speech that preserves the image of the person that you're speaking to. That you're not tearing them down and you're not beating them in the ground. That's how you present, prevent yourself from scarring others. Make sure your speech is pure and make sure it always preserves others. Quickly, let's look at another kind of speech and it's duplicitous speech. So that's fiery speech and now duplicitous, duplicitous speech. I'll get it out. Now, now here's where we see duplicitous speech. Notice what he says in verse number seven. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. That word restless there is the same word that he talked about uh, earlier on in the book of James, where he says a double-minded man is unstable as all his ways. So what James is saying here is speech that is double-minded. And that's Born out in the text. First of all, notice the definition of duplicitous speech he gives right after that. First of all, duplicitous speech is categorized in two ways. Lies as being lies and speech that's unloving. First of all, notice the lies. In, right after he says the restless evil, it says it's full of deadly poison. The word there for deadly poison has the idea of poison that comes from a snake. You all know what a snake represents. Genesis 3, the, say, the serpent coming in and talking with Eve and then Adam and how they were carried away with lies. So what's the first characteristic of duplicitous speech? It is lies. And why is lies so corrupting? Because our lies can shape the understanding of someone else, and cause them to be led astray. If somebody lies to you about a matter, you can't act wisely on the matter because you're not in possession of the facts. We need to not lie to one another. Instead, Paul says, speak the truth. But pastor, the truth puts me in a bad light. Of course it does, because you're not perfect. I told a lie to somebody once, well, many times, but I just remember this one in particular. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit says, you need to go and tell that person the truth. You know how long it took me to tell that person the truth? Seven years. Now, the irony isn't lost on me that it took seven years, and I counted. Huh? And then I asked myself the question, why didn't I want to tell the truth to begin with? Well, I didn't want to look bad. In our growth group, we started a study on the Holy Spirit. And after studying the Holy Spirit and getting ready to teach, my youth, uh, to teach our growth group, it dawned on me that, Pastor, <laughs> Pastor, you can't teach about the Holy Spirit and hold on to this lie. Why don't you go and tell the person who you lied to? And so after seven years, I picked up the phone and I told the person, hey, this happened. I lied to you. Please forgive me. And, and here's the thing. You know, was the lie of consequence? It doesn't matter. The point is, it wasn't the truth. I distorted their reality. 
and the Holy Spirit would not let me rest. Seven years. Seven years. He would not let me rest. Every time I got into that particular situation, he said, don't tell a lie. Because remember that lie you told a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, seven years ago? The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to lie because it distorts the reality of others. And so I made a choice not to look bad. And it ruined my soul for seven years. That's why the word of God tells us to speak the truth to one another. But it's not just the poisonous lies that we tell. But also, again, he speaks of the fact in verse number nine, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. It's unloving. What does it mean to curse someone, by the way? Has anybody ever thought about that? To curse someone simply means to wish they were outside of the covenant. In other words, it's to wish damnation on them. It's like you telling one of your um, unbelieving relatives, and I can't, you know, they frustrate you or anger you, and you say, you know what, I can't wait for you to die and go to hell. Would any one of you say that to your unbelieving relative? Of course not. That's what it means to curse someone, is to wish evil on them. Now, we're out of time, but I do want to say a word about redemptive speech. Because I can't leave you without talking about redemptive speech. What does redemptive speech look like? Well, if you go um, to the end of the chapter, verse 13 through 18, he talks about redemptive speech as being wisdom. You know, when Paul says, take every thought captive and bring it unto subjection to Jesus Christ, that's how we take every thought captive. Every time we think or something wells up in our hearts that's awful and mean to others, we ought to hold it captive. And by the way, why do you hold anything captive? So it wouldn't harm everything else. And so when we think of something impure, when we think about something mean to say to somebody because we're hurt, the Bible says, take that thought captive and say, is this the wisest thing for me to say right now? Is this the most redemptive thing that I can say right now? Is this the most holy and blessed thing I can say right now? That's what it means to take a thought captive. So when you go to say, something unkind to your spouse, or when you're just about to yell at your, at your kids, you pause and think, is this the wisest thing for me to say right now? And if you want a living example of this, look at Jesus before those who put him in trial. In the midst of being in, on trial, Jesus knew when to speak, and he knew what to say. And he was being accused of things he didn't do. They told lies about him. But our Lord and Savior had Holy Spirit-controlled speech. So that when they accused him of lies, he gently told them, that's not right. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. What's remarkable, and I'll end here, what's remarkable is even when Jesus was on the cross, and you could look at the seven things he said on the cross, even in the most difficult of circumstances, look at his speech. He 
said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Look at the character of his speech. He said, John, take care of my mother for me. He said, hey, you thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And I could go on and on. So, so please don't tell yourself that, oh, you know, sometimes I get in circumstances where I can't help myself. Of course you can help yourself. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit controls speech, trumps any situation in the world. Any situation in the world. And Christ proved that on the cross. And by the way, he went to the cross to give you the power to have grace and mercy in your speech even today. And hey, I know this sermon is not going, you know, you're not going to hear this sermon walk out and your speech is going to be perfect. That's not the point of this service. The point of this service is that you, in all humility, will be thoughtful and mindful of your speech and allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, work through you to say what is the most wonderful, glorious, awesome thing you can say. Oh, I'm out of time. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, oh, how glorious it is as we think about it. That we have the opportunity to use our speech to give life and blessing, or we can use our speech for pain. Help us, help us to choose life. I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the patience of this people to listen to your word. Uh, I pray that you might bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.